Welcome to the 10th installment of our podcast series, Bridging the Gaps, our final one in 2021. As usual, it is produced by FASTA and the European Health Futures Forum. I'm Sean O'Conlarn. And I'm Caroline White. One of the biggest concerns that many of us feel about the commercialism that's come to be associated with the holiday season is the sheer amount of waste it generates. There's the visible waste, such as excess packaging, that we're able to see and do something about. But more and more of our waste is now actually generated out of our sight in the digital cloud or in the manufacture of digital devices. In this episode, we'll be speaking with Jerry McGovern, who is a specialist in identifying and reducing digital waste and the author of the book World Wide Waste. How digital is killing our planet and what we can do about it. Jerry has written eight books about digital design and has appeared on numerous media, including the BBC and CNN. The Irish Times has described Jerry as one of five visionaries who have had a major impact on the development of the web. We go over to our interview with Jerry now. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Who is this guy, Jerry McGovern? And a little bit about your journey coming into this whole domain. I've been involved in, in the internet since the mid-90s. Before that, uh, I did a good bit of journalism. I used to be a, a rock journalist for Hot Press for a number of years. And I was also doing a little bit of technology freelance journalism. And I, I came across the web around 93, 94. And, and I thought, hey, this is going to change the world. And I said, you know, I want to get I want to get involved in this. And I got in touch with I think it was called the National Software Directorate in the Irish government. I said, you should really do a report on this thing called the Internet. And I could do it. <laughs> and I didn't think they'd get back, but they got back and they said, hey, do yeah, why not do it? And, and uh, so I ended up publishing a report called Ireland, the Digital Age, the Internet in the end of 1995 or early 1996. And from there, I got involved in, there was a company called NUA, I have found that became, you know, quite prominent in the digital space for a number of years in Ireland and, and abroad. And then, unfortunately, went bust around 2001. And so I, I've been involved in, in the whole space of the Internet and the growth of the Internet, and particularly a focus on, on data and content and, and, and the use of data and content. And almost writing and publishing at this stage, I've published eight books around content and the role of content and the role of data and, and the general role of the web. So that's a quick summary, doing lots of talks and workshops over the years and traveling around the world, talking about the role of content and the role of you know, how to organize websites and make things more efficient and simpler and make things easier to find and stuff like that. You mentioned that you've written a few books, and I know that you're the author of a book called Worldwide Waste, and there's also a Worldwide Waste podcast series. And could you say a few words just to explain what Worldwide Waste is all about? Basically, a look at, at the more negative aspects of digital and their impact on the environment, and how the growth of digital has caused some very negative consequences in the area, for example, of digital waste, electronic waste. We're creating over 50 million tonnes of electronic waste a year, which is enough to build the Great Wall of China. And that's going to double in the next 15 or 20 years. And data is exploding as well at, at 
unbelievable levels. Uh, and 90% of that data is not used three months after it's stored. So a lot of data centers are actually glorified dumps for actual data. So this was something that was a real surprise for me in a way, because I thought, oh, digital, it's really green and, and it's in the cloud and everything like that. And then I, I discovered, well, it's not in the cloud. The cloud is on the ground. These massive data centers estimated to take up 30% of Irish electricity over the next 15 or, or 20 years. So these sorts of issues and also the, the hidden impact of digital. I think we wouldn't have cheap flights if we didn't have the web. Digital is often an accelerant of some of our worst behaviors in that it encourages a world of convenience and me, 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 and now, now, now uh, in the process. So we're getting very inferior products that are only meant to last for a couple of years and, you know, but they're good bargains. And, and the web is like almost like a giant discount store uh, to get us to consume more and more and faster and faster. And that's a key driver and a key cause of the climate crisis. Just to be a devil's advocate, if I'm, uh, well, I was going to say a teenager, but if I'm even a little bit older, am I, even into my 30s or 40s, and I've got a Spotify account. I'm involved in YouTube music. I'm downloading. I'm sharing on Instagram and Facebook and, and, and all the rest of it. I, you know, isn't all that a good thing? Or what's, what's wrong with that? Well, I mean, at a certain level. But if we see, so to speak, the number one country that does all that, the United States, and how it's essentially on the path to fascism, it would seem at the moment. And, and, and I think that Facebook and, and social media have had a major hand to play in the, the massive industrialization of fake news. I mean, there was always fake news and there was always manipulation, but social media has allowed for the automation and the scaling and the industrializing of the flooding of extremism, because essentially extremism gets click and agitation. And so actually making people and the whole surveillance industry and how now parents are being sold. Hey, watch your child 24 seven. We've got all the tools that can watch them. So the technology industry are kind of thrives of unfortunately creating paranoia and massive consumption. So I think the models of the societies that we see that are the most technologically advanced, are they becoming better societies where people have good standards of living? I don't think they are. I don't, I don't think many people would want to actually model their society on what the United States is turning into at the moment. I don't really see, and while I accept all your arguments there, what's that got to do with waste? If, I, if I'm like uh, accessing all my music through Spotify, there's so much I can access. Whereas before I would have had to buy CDs and probably couldn't access a fraction of what I can do now. So why is what's wrong about that? Well, there's a couple of things there, Sean. One of them that uh, it's not necessarily better, say, for the environment to listen to something online than to have it in as a, as a physical artifact. There was a study, I think, done by some university in, in Northern England that showed if you listen to a song multiple times, it would be often better 
to have it locally on a, on a CD than to be constantly calling it down from the cloud in the, in the process. So this idea that digital is somehow cleaner in many situations, it's not. And it, it, many situations as well, like I'm a big, huge music fan, this massive explosion of choice doesn't necessarily lead to good things or expanded horizons. If anything, we're seeing digital behaviours becoming more tribal rather than becoming broader and that we're seeing a lot of the Spotify playlists becoming more generic. So all of this choice is not actually leading to broadening horizons, but actually more concentrated success of a small entity or type of music. And Spotify, it was bad enough being a musician before Spotify, but unless you're one of the hugely successful one, the, the tiny elite hugely successful. You're in a worse state today as an ordinary working musician than you were 15 or 20 years ago. Just like you are if you're an ordinary cab driver, etc. that actually these models have impoverished all but the super successful. Are you suggesting, uh, for example, that it's much better to keep all this content local, like to, for example, keep it on my computer, on my PC, whereas the whole trend has been to have everything so-called on the cloud? Yes. I mean, uh, the short answer, it's more complicated than that. But the further data has to travel, the more energy it consumes. And if we could create much less data. So, you know, instead of having 50,000 songs or the access to 50 or 100,000 songs, we had three or 400 or four or 500. So we've exploded the quantity of stuff that we have. And that ultimately creates a significant quantity of waste because 90% of data is not accessed three months after it's stored. Yet that data is continuously being stored. We're taking 1.4 trillion photos every year. We took more photos last year than in the entire 20th century. We now have something like 13 or, or 14 trillion photos taken and about 8 or 9 trillion of them being stored in the cloud. We're storing these fantastic quantities of, of waste uh, in the cloud. And yes, if you looked at a, one of these big data centers for a gigabyte, they are more efficient than um, a data center for a private company would, would typically be. But in the massive scale of the creation of content, they are contributing to this massive waste pileup. And what I do in, in my, I keep 95%, 98% of everything I have on my hard drive. And I only put into the cloud what I'm collaboratively working on. And then when I'm finished with it, I delete it and I try and really manage what I have locally. I delete emails that are more than two years old, uh, etc. I try and delete very large files. So I try and manage my environment. And I find that it's very doable. But yes, storing locally is about 3,000 times, one study found, more energy efficient than transferring it over to the cloud. You mentioned there almost like a cleaning up process for you personally, but should there be a global digital cleaning up process of data that's 
kept but is not being used at all because you, I think you, you gave some statistics there about 90% of it not being used 90% of the data that's searched for is not used again so the reuse where whereas like in environmental circles we always talk about reuse and recycle and so on but what's the equivalent in the digital world and what should we do at a macro level should there be a big movement around cleaning up Absolutely. I think there should be. And there are some initiatives in some countries. I think in, in France, they're particularly advanced in these sorts of ideas. But there is a default culture in technology that says, collect everything and we'll figure it out later. But we're, we're at scales of data, which are practically unimaginable. Like we're into zettabytes of data now. And I calculated in the book, how much, if we were to print out one zettabyte of data, uh, we would require the paper of 20 trillion trees. Just just one zettabyte of data would require the paper of 20 trillion trees. Now, there's about three and a half trillion trees on the planet at the moment. So it's not, we, we wouldn't have enough paper to print out even, you know, one fifth of a zettabyte of data. And by 2030 or 35, it's estimated we'll have over 2000 zettabytes of data. So we've more data, we're producing more data roughly every 12 to 18 months than in all the previous history. And it's just exploding at an exponential rate. And the vast majority of that data has little or no value. So it's it's been collected for collections sake because we just don't have the models or the ways or the cultures or the ways of thinking that think about, you know, should we do this? Digital says to us, do everything, collect everything, or take uh, 50,000 photos. You can you can sort them all later. There's always a promise of later on, we'll be able to organize this, or the search engine will do it for us, or AI will do it for us. These are, these are false models. So absolutely, we should really think about what devices we have and how many do we need, and why are we producing all this stuff? And do we need to send all these emails? Do we need to take all these photos? And if we take 50 photos on a session, let, spend 10 minutes and delete 40 of them, because I guarantee you, 40 of them are no good. And in school, we're not being taught basic skills of, there was these professors of mathematics, of computer programming, that said they had to now train first-year students to understand what was a file, what was a folder, how to find a file in a folder, the very rudiments of classification, because they thought everything was just in one great big folder on the web and that you just searched for everything. So first-year university students in programming not even understand the, in the rudiments of classification, organization, or architecture, or, or storage, or file structure. I mean, we are losing these real base skills because of digital. In some of your writing, you, you certainly talk about allowing the world to be controlled by big business and, and local businesses being destroyed because of that. And Behind that is really a question of what's valuable to us and, and to a certain extent, what pays, who pays for what. So in other words, all this damage that you're talking about, who's paying for it? And linked to that is the whole notion of as the web matures, that 
poverty reduction throughout the world has stalled. So how do all those things link together and how do you see it evolving or how do you see us having an influence on how it evolves? I think it's partly down to the network effect or, you know, that that network essentially, at a certain level, you think they distribute power, but in many ways they concentrate power. And certainly what we've seen in the first years, the first 30 years or so of the web is the absolute concentration of power. You know, there's just a couple of search engines. Amazon controls 40, 50% of retail, US retail. I don't know what global retail they actually control. So we see these absolute concentrations. And when, and so Amazon devastates in many ways local businesses and the local businesses that it allows to remain, that it hooks into, it takes away their customers in the sense of their customers are not owned by those local businesses. They are mediated through the Amazon master database of business. So if that local business leaves Amazon, they've lost their customers in the process. And we see the role of Ubers that when they go into a city, they devastate the local taxi companies. And then they essentially create a slave economy or a modern slave economy for those that are are left that, you know, the taxi drivers who can barely, barely, barely live on what they make from companies like Uber. And not alone that, the they, studies have shown they increase pollution, they increase traffic jams, they, um, they reduce usage of public transport, yet they're selling us all these things of they're wonderful for the world. You know, if we cheapen everything, there's a point at which we cheapen things to a level where we lose any sense of quality. So it's not that digital and and technology is is terrible, but we need much less of it than we're being told that we need. Electric cars are not the solution to the urban environment or or the future of climate change. Bicycles and walking are going to be a hundred times more effective than electric cars are in, in public transport. So we need much less technology and a kind of a real, much more severe look at these oligarchs of digital who have emerged in the last 10 years. I'd love to ask you, it's it's slightly off the agenda, but I personally am very much a fan of Linux and Ubuntu and alternative operating systems on my phone. I use Lineage and so on. All of these open source type approaches, first of all, they're usually, you know, it's usually nerds, I call them, although I don't class myself as a nerd, who are involved in them. And as well as that, like the state is very much backing like the the Googles and the Apples and driving us to their stores. So you only get access to state services. You only get access to bank accounts very often, digital bank accounts, if you go through Google Play Store or the Apple Store. So how do we break down this monopoly? And what, what do you think of the all of this, the, almost like an under-the-surface world of those who are trying to create open source technologies and share. Is that part of the future? Well, I'd hope so, Sean. I think it's a wonderful environment and school. The problem you've kind of articulated is that it's often nerds for nerds, that it, it lacks that what the Amazons and the Apples have is that amazing usability or ease of use 
And many people ignore that. They think, oh, it's all about the technical foundations or the technical brilliance, etc. But, you know, we're so driven by convenience. So I think there's wonderful foundational work there. How do we really scale it out into broader society? I think that's a challenge. I think government is either wittingly or unwittingly in the pay of big tech. It's embarrassing. I mean, Ireland has done so much good in the last 30 or 40 years, but it's almost embarrassing to look at the Irish government and their their acquiescence to big tech. It's, it's like there doesn't seem to be practically anybody in Irish government that I noticed that can actually think sceptically or with a broad objective view. It's whatever big tech want, we have to give them. Like the way we bent over backwards with the, the tax for Apple saying, no, we don't want the tax. We don't want, please give it back to Apple. You're terrified that we might somehow anger the master Apple or the master Facebook. And, you know, we, we could do it at an awful lot more scepticism at a government level, because it's absolutely outrageous that a government service should be mediated through a profit company. It's exactly what they want. It means that this lock on society, we've got to break the lock that big tech have on society because it will not end well. They do not have the concerns of society. They are engines of making billionaires even bigger billionaires. That's what big tech is essentially there. They are organizations of the concentration of wealth and power, not the distribution of wealth and power. How would you start to paint a nice future for us in this area? So assume when we get our act cleaned up, both on the cloud and on our own hard drive, so to speak, but how would you like to see things progressing and what's the first step on the road? Well, I think partly education and changing concepts of how we think of these problems that less technology you know and i think a lot of people are seeing this that bicycles not electric vehicles that walking that human engaging more with nature than engaging with technology drawing back from you know these metaverses and all these uh, sorts of things so you know, it is technology that's driving the climate crisis. The, the rich 10% create 50% of carbon emissions. The poor 50% cause 10% of carbon emissions. And the reason is that rich people use a lot of technology. That's why we're creating all these pollutions, whether the technology is in our, our SUVs or in our multiple devices. So I think a, a real drawing back saying we're not going to get rid of technology of course we're not but that less and that not in every situation and that there are many many situations where human intelligence and human thought and human behavior is actually better for humans and better for the environment in many ways so a return you know it may may sound corny but to nature can save nature nature will will not be saved by technology Our environment will not be saved by more technology, but less technology and more genuine social distributions, creating models that move away from this absolute concentration of wealth and power that the surveillance capitalism technology has enabled in the last 20 or 30 years. 
it really ties in very closely with with our own work, as you've probably realised, Jerry. And faster, I mean, we're part of something called the Wellbeing Economy Alliance, which is a global network working to reorient the whole economy towards well-being and away from expansion and materialism to uh, just more and more consumption and so on. So, I mean, we'd be really, we're sort of up to our neck and all of that stuff. So uh, <laughs> the whole um, impact on poverty and inequality and all of that as well. By the way, Jerry, I really like your idea and I switched off my video. I don't think people think about the cost of using video, the cost of the planet compared to just audio. You know, we just don't think like that. We think of the quality of the sound diminishing if you use video, but it's a very interesting point. Yeah, and I, I did a, an analysis there, Sean, about the various forms of communication and their weight, because basically weight in a simple sense is pollution. So the heavier, the more energy. I stored a thousand words of text as a text file, and that was about 6 KB. But a thousand words of text is about four minutes to read. So if that was in video, depending on the type of video, it could be hundreds of megabytes. So you're going from 6 KB audio, depending on the files, you're into megabytes, etc. So you have models of communication at which textual communication is by far the most environmentally friendly and video communication is by far the most environmentally damaging. But that's not saying don't use video. It's just really think because I've seen other studies on psychology that people are more stressed being on Zoom calls all day because just one thing looking at your own body constantly looking back at you is, is not psychologically good for a lot of people's mental health. So it's not necessarily better, this stuff. I've talked at organizations how we could maybe have a habit of the first five minutes are video to meet and greet, but then you go to audio or that more visualization is not necessarily better communication. And it's certainly not necessarily better for the environment. I think that's an extraordinarily interesting point. But if I put another question to you, say there's a Zoom meeting with, say, 20 people or 30 people, and they all have their videos on, and the meeting is going to last for an hour. Would you compare how people, if they've got their video on for an hour, compared to audio only from time to time, or if they were to do most of the work beforehand using text or email or something, how would you characterize those different approaches? I actually did a little bit of an analysis there, but just for two people, right? So if you had two people on an old phone, you know, those ancient phones, a wired phone, that would be about four megabytes of data for an hour, right? If you had the same audio call, over Skype, like this, over, over Zoom. So it's just pure audio. It's about 27, 30 megabytes. So actually, digital is much more inefficient as a means of transferring audio than dedicated audio, those traditional wires, because that's all they were dedicated for. But if you went to video, you'd be about 300 megabytes for about standard standard video. And then depending on if you went 4K or the high, high definition video, you could be up in a gigabytes of data. So about 90% more efficient. So just doing that in audio, that hour, an hour in audio would be about 27 megabytes. An hour of video would be about 270, 300 megabytes. So you're seeing the broad scales. And, and if you said to yourself, if we did the work, a bit of the work in advance, if we did a bit of thinking, if we 
sent a few emails and got ourselves, got our minds properly aligned. And we had a 30 minute, 30 minute call instead of an hour call. So I think people beginning to think about these things that this sense that, that digital has said everything is infinite. But it's not. And, and often the, the smallest cost is the most dangerous cost. Oh, it's just a gigabyte. It's just because it becomes invisible. And I think digital has become invisible because per gigabyte, it's a very, very low cost. So we think it's no cost. But low cost is not no cost. And when you scale it up into billions of gigabytes and, and, and terabytes and zettabytes, it begins to become a very, very significant and growing cost. And the biggest cost is actually in the devices, because that's where the most damage is, is occurring, is the digital devices, which have a hugely damaging impact on the environment because they contain so many materials and practically never recycled properly. There's a lovely website, Jerry. I don't know if you know it. it's Low Tech Magazine. Have you come across yeah. that? You know that That's one. a great way. Yeah, yeah. And it, it, loads of really great analysis on that and excellent thinking. I think it's hooked up to, um, if it's cloudy, you know, it may not be online because yeah, it's, yeah, uh, yeah. it, yeah, it's, it's hooked up to renewable so uh, energy. So a load of really excellent website. Yeah, they're great. They've influenced me a lot because I do the FASTA website. And about three years ago now, it's before the pandemic, I did a big rehaul to make it less energy efficient. I mean, more energy efficient, sorry. But I'm going to have to do it again, I think, because it's crept up on me. But that's just it's something I've, I've tried to be conscious of. But I mean, you you know a lot more about it than me. But it's just really... No, it's fantastic, Carla. There's another very good tool, I don't know if you're aware of, called the Website Carbon Calculator. Oh, okay. No, I don't know you that know you can put in your URL and it'll tell you roughly how much a visit to that page is creating, in, in, how many grams of CO2 it is oh, and wow. roughly where you are. So the website Carbon Calculator is an excellent tool there. Oh, I'll have to check that out. Yeah, you might be shocked, Caroline. <laughs> <laughs> that was digital designer Jerry McGovern speaking with us about the challenge of tackling digital waste. If you enjoyed this podcast, please spread the word about our series Bridging the Gaps and keep an eye out for the first instalment of our new series at the end of January. Many thanks to Jerry McGovern for his participation and, as usual, to Leisha Kelly for her music on the harp. Avlene Fuihainas Fuihwasha Yiv Galeer, wishing you health and happiness in the coming year. 